the same time as it can feel hopeful, it's also quite a toxic idea, I think, that just one person can save the world or society or whatever it may be. You can't just take one person and they defeat the evil and then everything's fine and and we don't we just like move on now and we won't worry about why that happened in the first place or how what was in what systems were in place to cause this this evil to come to power welcome to speculative sandbox your audio playground for creative storytellers my name is Vicky Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. Douglas Adams once wrote, It's one thing to think that you're the center of the universe. It's another thing entirely to have this confirmed by an ancient prophecy. Now add in a catastrophe on a global scale, and you have the perfect ingredients for a Chosen One narrative. Author Lucy A. McLaren joins me to talk about the Chosen One, how it's taken on a new form in recent years, and how the circumstances for a Chosen One can actually be the perfect setup for the villain. I have a head cold, so if I, if I oh, sound no. nasally or if I'm like foggy headed, I am sorry. <laughs> oh bless you! Don't worry, I'm coming out of like a three day migraine, so. Oh no, we're we're in great shape today. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for spending some time with me, um, an hour out of your day. I really appreciate it. I was excited when you selected the chosen one as a topic because it's one I've been wanting to talk about for a while. So I guess to get us started, can you share a little bit about yourself and your current projects and, and why you like the chosen one trope? Sure. Um, so I'm Lucy A. McLaren. Um, I'm a fantasy author. I'm currently working on a trilogy called The Commune's Curse, um, the first of which um, called Awakening released in May, just gone. Um, so I'm working on book two of that at the moment, alongside various other kind of fantasy thing I've always got like some idea ticking away so like short stories or like longer things um as and when I have time to because I'm trying to juggle that along with raising a one-year-old so it's mm. it's proven uh, an interesting balance to try and strike certainly but I'm, I'm hopefully getting to more of a place where I can feel like I'm a bit of a, I'm a writer again rather than just a parent who sometimes writes um <laughs> so that's been a challenge but the chosen one for me I, I feel like it's interesting because it is so prevalent in fantasy right I've been a fantasy fan um since childhood like uh I, I grew up re reading the like Enid Blyton magic faraway tree books um and then stuff like um Tamora Pierce's Song of the Lioness Quartet was like an epiphany for me when I was about 11 I think and and suddenly kind of fell in love with the uh, fantasy genre and like the Lord of the Rings films came out when I was about 12 so all these kind of things just led to me loving fantasy. And The Chosen One is just so popular in the fantasy genre that I feel like it'll be an interesting one to talk about. Because I, I think it's really, really popular, but at the same time, people sometimes get a bit, I think, annoyed maybe with how much it's used. Mm -hmm. But yeah. for me, I, I, I just, yeah, I, I, I haven't used it really outwardly in my books, but I've kind of tried to subvert it a little bit in that there's, 
there is someone with incredible powers, but she's not a main character. She's a six-year-old girl. She's the sister of one of the main characters. In, yeah. in, in, one of, in the book that you're currently writing? Uh, in Awakening, the one that came out in May. Oh, so in Awakening. Was, okay, gotcha. You know, it's, it's all linked. Um, but yeah, so I kind of, she's not the chosen one necessarily, but she would probably fit into the, maybe the rules or whatever you want to call it as to what defines a chosen one and that, you know, got incredible powers and can uh, will possibly end up being a big part in how things turn out possibly not but it's I don't know I want that's what that's why I want to subvert it a little bit like you know I think this is where it comes into people getting a bit frustrated with the chosen one being used because you can kind of predict it in a way mm. and I think it's important for authors to try and step outside of that a little bit now and think how they can change it that's a really good point I know for so first of all I can totally relate on being a parent and also a writer and finding that, that time especially when so much of your brain gets used up by the child oh yeah um, it's such a challenge yeah. uh, but for the chosen one trope um, I that was definitely a favorite of mine too especially growing up I looking back on my old stories from when I, I've been writing since I was six I'm sure you relate uh, mm-hmm. a lot of my stories followed the chosen one trope and I think because when you're a kid there's so much in your life that is outside of your control you have your parents telling what to do your teachers schools and the chosen one kind of allows you the character to be gifted or appointed a role Mm -hmm. and now you're able to kind of rise to that challenge and so for me that that was just very appealing it gave me an escape you know in my brain while I'm writing these stories yeah absolutely I think that's one of the appeals actually of the chosen one um is that yeah it can take these seemingly ordinary people um often you know teenagers because it's seen quite commonly in like YA fantasy for example like you know Katniss for example she's I think supposed to be a teenager um but it's just Mm. that idea of oh it could be could be me because it's like just like you know they seem quite normal before this kind of prophecy or whatever is thrust upon them um and yeah I think there's a lot to be said for like younger readers definitely like you know for me when I was younger it would be reading like His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman so like Lyra like you know she's a child but she and and you know not one who's got who's endowed with any kind of magical abilities or anything she's just very 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 stubborn um and yeah she ends up kind of saving the world saving multiple worlds in fact so let's talk about the major components of the chosen one trope and their examples i identified chosen ones uh okay into a couple different groups one was characters that are uniquely situated to solve a problem by destiny Mm. then we have characters that are uniquely situated to solve a problem by proxy or circumstances such as being elected by others Mm-hmm. Then we have characters who may be born or bequeathed unique gifts that make them unique. Mm-hmm. And then we have characters born into royalty. Characters must be born into royalty, allowing them certain privileges, access, and resources. So I have examples for each, but I wanted to see if, like, did I catch all the circumstances that you would find a chosen one? I think so. That sounds very comprehensive. Okay. What are some of your, your favorite components and, and examples? um so definitely like uh, I feel like a big one is the idea of a prophecy um dictating that this person is going to be uh you know special in some way is going to end up saving whatever it is world or people or 
yeah whatever the the kind of destiny is but I'm going to go back to Lyra here because she there's a prophecy at play but I think another important aspect of this is that she's not aware of the prophecy for quite a long time of the mm. uh, the trilogy um and it's kind of, that's actually part of the prophecy is that she shouldn't find out that she is Eve as in like the Genesis biblical sense um mm-hmm. Eve and Will is uh, Adam but she shouldn't find out about that and they're basically they're supposed to end um, original sin and and it's you know there's a lot of religious kind of messages going on in this book and um, think, well, this oh, I said this book I always count it as one book but it's a trilogy mm-hmm. um, yeah so I think yeah another part of that prophecy is them not being aware and I'm sure there are other books where that's the case like there's prophecies that the, the chosen one doesn't become aware of until later so that seems like quite an important thing um because it's almost like them finding out the prophecy is like a big moment of like an epiphany or either like they become very doubtful or they're like oh I really need to do this then kind of thing mm-hmm. do you think it's better for a character to not know that they've been pro- have been part of a prophecy uh, I'm, I'm thinking of an example where someone was informed that they were in a prophecy. We have Neo in the Matrix, where he is mm. yanked out because he's been prophesied or prophesied. I don't know the great word, correct way to say oh, that word. Um, <laughs> and now there's a, a huge amount of pressure, and he's like, "I don't know if I can do this." Rather mm. than had you not known, and you are going after your, you know, your goal simply because of your own conviction and, and belief systems. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I. You know, if you think about it from your own personal perspective, you're like, wow, that's a lot of pressure to suddenly be like, yeah, there's a prophecy and you need to do this and save us all kind of thing. Maybe them not being aware of it makes it that easier in a way, like for them to just kind of carry on down their path and be like slowly kind of mentored down the correct pathway. But I think ultimately it comes to a point where they need to know it because it usually they, there's like this you know the field of self-doubt and not you know they have challenges and they fail at points and get to a stage where they're kind of thinking I'm gonna not be about to defeat this great evil or whatever it is so being then being made aware of the prophecy can be uh, something that's strengthening for them but being aware of it from the outset yeah like Neo is, is a bit of a messes with his head majorly doesn't it and it's like do I want to do this or shall I just go back and pretend none of this is happening and which would be a tempting choice because again huge amount of pressure for one person to take on yeah especially if like let's say a hypothetical situation you are and I are called to be, we have a destiny and we must save this certain community that we've never actually been a part of or we need to now learn about and mm-hmm. so I have to overcome this huge hump of what what is the actual investment and i you know know what does the prophecy fill that void or do do you have to from a writer's perspective also build in some personal stakes so that the main character wants to pursue this goal yeah i i would say so because otherwise it feels a bit flat i don't it feels like if they haven't got some kind of personal investment whatever that may be it doesn't have to be like family or personally knowing uh you know if it's like saving the world that's like yeah okay you can't really be personally invested in everyone in the world but you can appreciate 
that certain aspects of it are important for you if you see what I mean mm-hmm. like it feels like there has to be some kind of personal drive I think otherwise it just feels a bit like there's someone who's just doing what they're told and not really thinking about what it means for them mm-hmm. yeah and, and when you take away the prophecy for stories that don't have prophecies and you have main characters that are going based just on their personal drives and motives and that's when I see like Katniss Everdeen and Hunger Games mm-hmm. and even I mean I don't know if Clark Kent Superman has necessarily a prophecy I guess maybe he did when their father said to uh now, now I'm trying to like pick my my brain my memory right now but there isn't a prophecy for Superman is there uh if I'm sure in like the Henry Cavill films they talk about like his his dad Russell Crowe um, <laughs> <laughs> leaves a message is like something about saving uh, saving the world that you're just des- okay so maybe that is maybe not I, I'm not I know I don't know the comics my husband would be mad at me if he heard this because he's like a massive comic book person whereas I'm just okay. like yeah the films are good um, <laughs> okay maybe I'll go off of Smallville then because <laughs> yeah. favorite show growing up and you have this teenage boy that has a really good father for a role model and is mm-hmm. just taught you know if you have gifts you should use them to help others mm. and so I feel like that you know someone who is uniquely situated to solve a problem by circumstance mm-hmm. um is there a prophecy for Frodo or is that by <laughs> circumstance <laughs> Yeah, I would say that circumstance in, you know, he finds himself left the ring, um, basically inherits it, doesn't it, from um, Bilbo. Mm-hmm. So definitely just kind of finds himself flung into this situation. And it's, it's interesting because, yeah, the films are, you know, I'm a massive fan. I I think I tried to read the books when I was like 12, uh, semi-successful. I've recently tried to read them again and is no I, I really want to get into it but it's a I'm like still in the bit where Frodo gets given the ring I didn't realize how long it stretched out for mm. and like Gandalf goes off and finds information and just like Frodo just kind of has the ring and doesn't really do much for years um but in the films it's obviously m- much more fast-paced than that and he suddenly when Gandalf comes and tells him doesn't he that it's like it, this is the one ring and you need to go and destroy this thing mm-hmm. and it's kind of just like oh okay <laughs> <laughs> I think Frodo was really scared too when he first found yeah. out it's a lot of pressure mm-hmm. um and then I move on to let's see characters born or bequeathed unique gifts that make them that make them unique I had Buffy Summers with powers every every time there's a chosen one that's the a vampire slayer that one, mm-hmm. that one was really big over here I don't know if you guys yeah, yeah okay watch that when I, I don't know when that was on tv well like 20 years ago I want to oh, say yeah. maybe, maybe a bit more but yeah I definitely watched that when I was younger yeah uh, so one person dies and another person's just magically chosen and they get these gifts to fight vampires yeah um yeah so that's definitely a good example like she's kind of like it's almost like she, she definitely has no choice because she's just has this gift now so it's like yeah you, if you don't do that no one else is going to do it mm-hmm. um, which sucks and I guess that's also like you're uniquely situated to solve a problem by circumstances uh so it's kind of I guess maybe it's a subcategory of that uh also same with royalty your circumstances Mm. that you're born into royalty and you have privileges I think of (laughs) Sailor Moon (laughs) she's the the moon princess and she's given all of these gifts and expectations that she has to do things um I think there's also a prophecy involved in that one so I I guess it all crisscrosses 
Mm. Yeah, I think that a lot of these components, yeah, like, you know, there's, they're a bit enmeshed, aren't they? Uh, like, there's no one, one of these that makes the chosen one. It's kind of multiple aspects of these, these things. And, um, which, yeah, I think makes it, it's still an interesting trope to me, as much as we've seen it so much. Um, I, I think it's still an enjoyable trope because of the reason that we said, like, it's almost some well sometimes a bit of a blank character that we can put ourselves onto mm-hmm. um, um but another thing that i don't know if you've got this on your list is like the um the big sacrifice that the chosen one has to make at the end oh yes yes what are your um, examples well again i had frodo again because he's obviously i think it's like he's got semi like ptsd mm-hmm. after you know they go back to Hobbiton and he's he can't really live a normal life can he he's just kind of mentally and physically scarred from what from what they went through and um ends up going to I can't remember the name the elven um it's like an afterlife um yeah yeah, he he like goes on the ship um Mm -hmm. with the elves at the end and like basically will never go back to uh to middle earth and he's kind of just like traumatized so he's like yeah i'm gonna go because i can't i can't live a normal life here mm-hmm. so that's you know he's dealing with the the mental scars of of what he had to go through so that feels like a big sacrifice and then another one again you know i'm gonna mention her a lot but lyra because it's my favorite series of books so i just can't get away from it but her big sacrifice is having to say goodbye to the person that she loves and, and will and you know if you haven't read these stories then I apologize for the spoilers but <laughs> they are like 20 plus years old um, <laughs> that ending was devastating I was sad oh my god like seriously like the tv shows like coming up to the final series now and I'm like dreading the bit where they have to say goodbye because absolutely heartbreaking but that's is yeah a massive sacrifice for her to make as like a 13 year old um yeah it felt it felt like a big thing yeah I can see yeah in the matrix there's always there's like a sacrifice that kind of gets used as like a final point of victory where you have Neo who dies in the hallway but that's what actually helps him to bring him to his final form and finally now he's the chosen one and then even Harry Potter um just walks into that forest where Voldemort is and Mm -hmm. lets himself get blasted away because that's what's needed and you know he doesn't fully die at, at the end but that sacrifice was made I'm trying to think if there's any other ones I could think of off the top of my head we talked about it a little bit as far as yeah. like how we can the chosen one trope is easy to kind of place yourself in it um but why do you think it's so popular um so apart from what I've already said you know about them being someone we could really relate to I think mm-hmm. another part of that is, is in often in chosen one stories there's like a really clear distinction between good and bad because it's like they have to overcome this bad thing. Um, And real life is really not that clear cut. Like things are a lot more gray than, than they are just kind of one end of the spectrum or the other. But I think it's, it's good in a way of having these books that are very kind of like, this is right. And this is wrong especially for younger readers where perhaps they're in the process of forming like, you know, a moral compass. Um, it could be helpful to see those kind of distinctions as much as, yeah, real life is never going to be that simple, but 
when you're growing up and forming these kind of ideas, it can help to simplify it. Um, and yeah, I just think there's perhaps maybe all of us want to be the chosen one a little bit, like just the idea that we can affect change on a massive scale and, you know, make the world a better place. It's, it's a nice idea, the, the idea that one person could do that. Yeah. Well, that's actually a really interesting segue to the next question where the chosen one isn't unique to fiction yeah. and we can look at any prophet or king throughout history. You have people that are uniquely placed in a position by inheritance or birthright with the goal of accomplishing accomplishing something on behalf of society that they yeah. believe no one else can accomplish. So it, when you take the fictional trope and you apply it to the real world, one of my ba- favorite examples of this is King Henry VIII, who believed God spoke through him and he didn't need the church. And he used his own versions of things to justify his many marriages. He killed several of his wives. Yeah. Scary, terrifying um, idea of a chosen one. Do you have any idea um, examples of that? I do. And th- you know, this is a really interesting question because I was like, ah, what, who, who? I can't think of anyone. But I, so I did some research and I found a really interesting one that was like, um, an oracle in ancient Greece who was basically um, consulted by people from Greece and Rome called the Delphic Oracle. So she, a priestess of Apollo um, had her, she spoke in riddles and would have those riddles kind of examined and interpreted by uh, the prophet I'm probably pronouncing that completely wrong, but that's where we get the word prophet and prophecy from. Um, so I found that really interesting. Um, and basically, she apparently helped the Greeks win the Persian War and predicted her own downfall, like in terms of the Church of Apollo, because at that time, Christianity was basically becoming the main religion in ancient Rome. So she, wow. so she predicted her own downfall? Yeah, like basically uh, when um, there was an emperor that tried to kind of fight back against Christianity um and when he sent a messenger to her to to ask for a prophecy she said i'm massively paraphrasing but something along the lines of just tell him that the church of apollo is is falling and and yeah so she could see i don't know whether that was just being very astute in terms of seeing christianity um spreading already and that it was too late but yeah to be able to prophesy your own downfall i found that quite impressive that's like the sacrifice at the yeah. end yeah interesting hmm. okay so that was an interesting one but then I, I kind of yeah henry the eighth definitely is, is a big one you know actually forming a church so that he could divorce um his first wife i think it was so he could marry anne boleyn mm-hmm. you know that's obviously had a lasting impact in um in in the uk and but then i was thinking like does it have to be like figures in kind of royalty or that kind of high position because I was like could people who just like are basically ordinary mm-hmm. but who affect massive change in their time so people like Rosa Parks, Emmeline Pankhurst they obviously had massive impacts in their periods of, of time um, but then I was like what, were they seen as that at, at the time were they seen as these huge figures or was it only with hindsight that we could go back and go these were in in certain elements could be seen as like the chosen one because of the impact they had their actions had on 
like the civil rights movement, um, suffragettes, like at the time they were probably seen as troublemakers, right? Yeah. But now we look back on them, we're like, wow, they did amazing things. So how would you distinguish the chosen one trope from another trope, the mm-hmm. one who chooses? <laughs> yeah. I think the the chooses bit is like the key element there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, chosen one is, like we've said, kind of either prophesied, prophesied. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. A prophesied prophecy I don't know <laughs> or appointed yes yeah. like it's like their fate they're told by uh, a, a person or a group of people or like a god or they're born into a circumstance it's, it's not their choice ultimately so uh, thinking about that it was like they often have this real grappling to accept that chosen one position we see that in a lot of stories Whereas the one who chooses is making a decision and they're probably going through, you know, extensive t- training or tests because they know where they want to go. So they're kind of pushing themselves towards that path. Whereas the chosen one is going to be pushed towards that path to an extent until they get to the point where they're like, yeah, I'm going to do this. They may have encouragement for like friends or mentors or whatever it may be. So it's definitely that person who chooses is acting under their own volition kind of thing mm-hmm. and chosen is propelled forward by something outside of themselves yeah I think this one got me thinking a lot about Hunger Games because you have Katniss Everdeen who I kind of identified as a chosen one earlier but I think that's because her her story kind of dips in and out of it you have her choosing to stand in place of her sister so I feel yeah. like that's her choosing but then later she kind of becomes appointed as the as the face of the rebellion and she yeah. is made to do these commercials and all this propaganda where she mm-hmm. starts to feel very outside of her autonomy um but when she's given her own autonomy to fight on her on her level if i remember correctly i feel like she just felt better about it um yeah. although i think the whole time she hated that she was in the circumstances anyway yeah and th- she's yeah with Katniss it's it's almost like whenever someone she loves or cares about is in danger is when she chooses to take proactive uh path the paths if you see what I mean like she like she yeah volunteers on behalf of her sister um she reacts to the attack on the hospital in district I forget seven or I, I, I can't remember which which one it is but she is very like yeah I'm gonna fight against um the capital when there's a threat against someone that she cares about so she, that's almost like a big part of what propels her forward I think and yeah she's very reluctant to be like the face of the rebellion but it's almost like a part a necessity in terms of um well being able to save like Peter for example mm-hmm. um so it becomes something she realizes she has to do if she wants to save the people that she loves what do you think of the, I guess it's a, in and of itself could be a trope, when Katniss volunteers to save her sister and her drive and her motive is to save her sister, but that same sister gets killed off later. Mm. I've seen that repeated in other stories, like your whole entire motive is is shot. How mm. does that affect the overall, like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it's almost like, 
do you think that the author uses that as a reason to kind of cause rage or like uh, a moment where it's trying to push them forward even more to that end goal rather than like to lose momentum Mm. I'm trying to think of another example of a story where that happens and it's 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 almost frustrating in a way but but at the same time it's kind of realistic to that story because yeah you know we got President Snow doing terrible things and I think it would almost be a bit like plot armor-ish if everyone kind of survived and it was all great at the end so I, I do appreciate stories where um there are losses like that that have an impact on the chosen one and it I don't know it almost makes them more relatable I guess in a way um another part of them dealing with like you know human struggles as they're trying to also take on like the the entire world on their shoulders yeah it it almost seems like this elevation of stakes where at the beginning we were like okay it's about the sister we're keeping the sister safe but at this point it's like it's about the entire society and now the sister's gone but there's still an entire society to fight for but I'm even trying to like did Katniss ever actually care about all of the society I'm trying to remember (laughs) I know she was devastated when she lost her sister yeah, I I think it gets to a point where when she goes to district, is it thirteen? Yeah, that's the one where it's like a seat, like they didn't realize it was still there. Mm-hmm. Well, since I've read the books or watched the film, but yeah, I, I I think part of her, you know, she makes friends with like um, the other uh, tributes, for example, when they get sent back in, um, and kind of builds like companionships with a lot of them and and I don't know there's also that reticence where she realizes like they've basically volunteered her for this rebellion and she didn't um want agree to it and didn't know anything about it and but yeah I, I think a part of it is like her coming around to caring about the like injustices the, you know? yeah that's but, true yeah like, I sorry go ahead she doesn't want to be like she's like pissed off that she's become the face of the rebellion but i don't think that means she doesn't want uh president snow taken down mm-hmm. the the most fascinating part i found since we're talking about this series is the idea that there's supposedly salvation in that other district but then mm-hmm. at the very end she ends up killing that president too because she recognizes that same power hunger yeah sometimes the very person that is like against the system or whatever that Mm -hmm. is pushing for like you know the riots and everything might actually be just as dangerous might be like the same person of a different shade I don't know absolutely yeah I I think so is that idea of like if you just remove the bad person so snow and replace him with the woman that Julianne Moore played who I can't remember her name neither yeah (laughs) like she was very gray wasn't she like wore a lot of gray um but like yeah the idea of just replacing him with her would somehow fix it when actually like there's someone who is got those similar traits it doesn't take much to kind of corrupt someone who is seemingly in a position where they want to help but you know power is a uh, I guess something that's what can be quite intoxicating yeah. and 
yeah it's you don't solve a hugely broken system by just like replacing the 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 person at the top you have to challenge the entire system and doesn't that trilogy end with a basically her being like yeah this is probably going to happen again but mm-hmm. we're just going to enjoy this while it lasts yes so realistic uh, yeah. i bet you i mean both presidents thought they were the chosen one in their respective yeah. way oh yeah do you have it's any like- other examples of the one who chooses trope before i move on not that i can think of no okay. uh, i'm sure there are many but like seriously my brain is not cooperating okay. <laughs> i'm a little foggy headed today so <laughs> i walk around the house and i'm like dizzy <laughs> it's wonderful so that actually segues really well into the next section which is you know talking about the positives and downsides of the chosen mm-hmm. trip how you know we have chosen ones who are heroes and then you have villains who think they're the chosen ones so i guess yeah. let's start with what are the positives to the chosen one trope um just the idea that there can be one person that can save the world i think that feels strangely hopeful in when we're dealing with a world of our own that is complete mess um the idea that if if one person can affect change maybe we'll be okay like maybe if we get a different person in charge of the country like for you president for us prime minister maybe it'll be okay like i know ultimately that's not as simple how simple life is but it just leaves us with this idea of hope maybe i agree Uh, especially for middle grade as mm. children get into reading books and because mm-hmm. you know when you're younger it's your point your narrow folk your point what your narrow you have a very narrowed focus right yeah. and being able to read characters that are you know first of all it's easy to build a narrative around one central character but children also relate to them well and it's an opportunity to teach them good work ethic um teach them bo- uh, values how to uh, you know value other people and yeah. stand up for other people so mm-hmm. I I think that it's a useful tool for those things mm, definitely um and I think it's good also that we're seeing um chosen one figures from like marginalized groups more and more mm-hmm. so it's, you know it's all very well saying like the chosen one trope is massively overused but actually it's not for certain groups of people because historically we've seen like you know cisgendered white male chosen one figures um slowly started seeing more female and then we've got more black and ethnic minority uh trans non-binary all those kind of marginalized groups where it was basically non-existent previously mm-hmm. um i think that's good like that you know as much as the chosen one is tired from a certain perspective i.e cisgender white males seeing them from different groups is is interesting and seeing different takes on it you know people who are applying their own kind of experiences cultural backgrounds all those kind of things brings a whole new light to the chosen one trope so i think that's that's great um like a big example i'm thinking of is like uh decker in the gilded ones which is a book that has been on my tbr for ages um but i'm like really looking forward to reading and there's i'm sure there's a whole wreath of other books with this this kind of new take on the chosen one coming from a completely different background than we've we've seen previously and I think that's a, a massive positive is that we're now able to read these way more diverse books agreed so then what are the downsides aside from just being like a lot of it as yeah. far as character <laughs> development <Yeah>. maybe <laughs> yeah. 
well, I think I like on this at the same time as it can feel hopeful, it's also quite a toxic idea, I think, that just one person can save the world or society or whatever it may be. Um, like like I said about you know, re- removing one figurehead and replacing them with another is not going to fix a broken system. That it's the same kind of idea that you can't just take one person and they defeat the evil and then everything's fine and and we don't we just like move on now and we won't worry about why that happened in the first place or how what was in what systems were in place to cause this um this evil to come to power you know it's it's uh, there are books that are probably guilty of not really examining why a certain well I'm just using the word evil you know replace that with what you will but why certain evil has been allowed to kind of grow and like for example like the handmaid's tale actually is like a big example there isn't it like that where there where um oh my god i can't remember what the government's calling that my brain today where um that government has come into power and it's kind of like how did this happen what, what could we have done to stop this and just the idea that you know you couldn't just replace the the president of um i keep wanting to say pan m but that's hunger games <laughs> <laughs> i have i've been i know the story of, Hung- of the handmaid's tale i think because it's a little traumatizing for me i haven't watched yeah. it yet <laughs> scary yeah um close. yeah it, it's definitely too close um so just the idea that you can yeah replace one bad guy and mm-hmm. and save the world is is too simplistic in terms of real life um because it takes more than one person to implement change in in, in a deeply toxic uh society mm-hmm. and it takes you know years and years of fighting it takes many many people to root out like evil whether it's possible at all you know sometimes it feels a bit a bit too hopeless um so yeah i I just think ultimately you can't just say this one person is going to save the world is that's not real life no well and it got me thinking of harry potter because you know at the end of the series he's defeated voldemort and i guess we're supposed to believe that that's it but as you went through the series you realized how complex this world system is and how corrupt um, mm. I mean there's a reason why and I mean it's it's stuff that we can all examine from history you know Nazi Germany and you know yeah. citizens being compliant uh, with evil intentions and mm. you know being able to like, okay we got rid of the figurehead but mm. the things that allowed a group of people to look the other way or even comply against like mass genocide like that's mm. a systemic issue that needs to be looked at how do you even f- solve that exactly you just replace the figurehead with another figurehead yeah Um, so oh sorry go ahead no no i was just gonna say it's just yeah it just doesn't feel real to life and as much as people do read fancy stories for an escape i i think there's a lot of value in in fancy stories exploring real life issues as well Mm -hmm. i also found the 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 downside of the chosen one trope would be that the conditions that support a chosen one trope is actually a really prime foundation for a villain because mm-hmm. life seems to cater to them and mm-hmm. i immediately think of daenerys targaryen um how she felt like she was chosen in her birthright and even in circumstances how she was able to you know grow and learn and build uh, mm-hmm. upon her you know rule but then mm-hmm. i mean we don't know how the book series is going to end but as far as the, the rushed <laughs> ending of the season uh. 
uh, <laughs> the idea is that power corrupts and yeah. there's little, you know, bugs, bugs, what's the word I want to use? Easter eggs or little hints throughout yes. the whole series where you can kind of see power corrupting from someone feeling like they've been the chosen one the whole time. And so yeah, yeah. I can see every single villain is really a chosen one in their own right. Oh yeah, definitely. And you know, I yeah, I I hope we get to read how George R. R. Martin deals with Daenerys' downfall if he goes down that road. I think there are yeah, like you said, you know, there's hints, there's her family history and stuff like that. The TV show handled it terribly and rushed it and made it just this unbelievable change, like switch in her, which it could have been done really, really well, I think. And it would have been very interesting to see her kind of descent into madness. But definitely you see throughout like her just feeling as though she's kind of untouchable in a way because she is meant to uh, be the ruler of Westeros. So she kind of is that is like what leads her on, isn't it? That's she's just like, yeah, I'm going to get over. That doesn't matter what I have to do. I'm going to get the ships that I need. I'm going to get the soldiers that I need. I'm going to make it over there just because I was born a Targaryen. And so it's my birthright. Mm -hmm. I read somewhere that all chosen ones have a fatal flaw. Do you think this is true? I think, yeah, I think a lot of them do. And I think it's part of making them human and relatable. Um, I'm sure there are some that don't have and are just like perfect chosen ones. But then that, that, that feels a bit to me like uh mary sue and whatever the male equivalent is of, of that gary sue gary sue <laughs> is it a gary sue let me see i know <laughs> <laughs> i need to look this up now it yeah it's gary stew stew there we go it couldn't have been sue that's yeah, okay <laughs> mary sue and gary stew yeah so yeah if they don't have a fatal flaw it feels a bit too like yeah they're just perfect and great and uh, a character that springs to mind there for me is uh in um name of the wind and like he's an interesting character but um like he just he can just do everything amazingly well uh, and becomes a bit annoying to the extent that you're like yeah all right you're just perfect everything you do it's great um yeah. and that turns I'm readers and viewers away when they're when yeah. they feel that way yeah um so i think actually having a flaw is important in a way and if you want readers to connect with with your character um like I'm going back to Katniss again like I think her fatal flaw is that she acts kind of a little bit impulsively maybe when people that she loves is in, are in danger like you know volunteering in the first place that's just like a knee-jerk reaction isn't it to her sister being picked out mm -hmm. um so that could be a bit of a flaw. It's like you know, just not thinking things through very well, just just acting on impulse as soon as someone you love is in danger. But it also makes her a character that you want you care about because she cares so deeply about um, the people around her. Mm -hmm. um, and another one that came to mind was uh, Fitz from Robin Hobbs' um, Farseer trilogy. And I don't, I don't know if you could really define him as like a chosen one in the sense of like he has a destiny to fulfill, but he does have a massive impact on the people around him in, in like he's, um, you know, he's a bastard son of, of, of royalty and he's taken in by um, the, the, the Farseer, um, I think they're called the Farseer line of like kings, but it, like him being, even just being around them, 
changes the decisions that they make. So he's an important character, but he's also kind of a kid that's just like bumbling his way through and like making poor decisions. And you kind of grow up with him as the, the series goes on. So yeah, I think his fatal flaw is that he is just human and he's just like finds himself. Um, he learns that he's a, a bastard child of a, of royalty and he's like, Oh, okay. So that's uh, I didn't expect that, and just yeah, trying to live his life and and understand what that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I when I was thinking of what a fatal flaw would be, my mind came to Anakin Skywalker because I thought he was a good example of what happens when you lean into your fatal flaw, and maybe that's what it takes to go from hero to villain. But I, yeah. as the chosen one, he was prophes- prophesied <laughs> by. You know, when they when they you know met him with the metachlorine, I don't sorry, Star Wars fans, you can be mad at me. My brain's not 100 percent right now. Um, anyway, so the thing that seemed to be his fatal flaw was that he he seemed to have too much passion or too much emotion. He was never really mm-hmm. able to fulfill what the Jedi needed of him, which is to kind of yeah. like watch his watch his feelings. And as a result, the dark side was able to take advantage of him and manipulate him and and turn him and um i thought that was like a, a one a very big way to show that um a chosen one has a fatal flaw but part of me also wondered and i think this was brought up in another episode that i did on uh doomed mentors which is you know was was uh obi-wan a good mentor to him you know was he surrounded with the right people you have the jedi order which had all these really high expectations were they the best system to support someone who yeah. had you know he was taken away from his family and then his mother was was killed you know all these things about him it's like when you have a child in real life who has depression or intrusive thoughts and you as a system around that child don't support them adequately and then you wonder why when they grow up are they so angry or they do things you know exactly you know that really resonates because i I'm a counselor and work with like young people and it's yeah the idea that you know is yeah Obi-Wan's a bit like why can't you just control your emotions it's not that difficult when it is difficult if you've been through multiple traumatic experiences um and it's almost like yeah he kind of gets like the dark side like you know the emperor's like yeah just let yourself feel the anger like just let it out and Obi-Wan is not like that he's like no you've got to rein it in uh and if you're someone who's been through difficult experiences someone who's struggling with mental health issues you can't just rein things in you can't just stop yourself feeling things or if you do it ends up ultimately bursting out of you um because it's got to come out sometime Mm -hmm. so his reaction ultimately makes a lot of sense and the way that anakin's uh story goes make sense from that point of view like he he needed some counseling and he did not mm. receive the support that maybe would have meant he could he would uh would have chosen differently we have a listener question someone submitted a question on the chosen one trope mm-hmm. so this one kind of reflects what we've already talked about where they feel like you know it's uh, all everywhere but the question was why won't the chosen one trope die oh yeah i i think it's just there's more you can do with it like as much as we've you know it's so popular we've seen it in so many stories ultimately writers and especially writers you know in the fantasy genre we're all just retelling what is essentially the same story um and I just think if you're using a trope anyway as an author what's important is being able to 
put your own spin on it. Um, and I think we're seeing that more and more now. We know we're seeing, like I said earlier, people from more diverse backgrounds are finally being kind of <sighs> encouraged and being given voices where previously they weren't. Um, and so that's kind of seen perhaps a bit of a revitalization of like the chosen one trope or other tropes as well in terms of we're seeing new um people in the chosen one role um so i i think part of it still being so popular and not dying is that it's it's almost kind of started again from square one from these marginalized groups from writers who are from different backgrounds who aren't just white men um so in a way i i think we should cherish that we should say okay yeah if if it's a chosen one that is a white man and it's a story we've seen 100 million times before yeah okay that that's as boring but if we're seeing a chosen one that's different is a is is a person uh from a different background than we're used to is has been through uh, different experiences is being written from the point of view of a completely new culture then I think that needs to be encouraged really because yeah white writers have kind of had their fill of the chosen one but that doesn't mean that writers from marginalized groups have they've kind of only just begun in a way that's a really good point as one of my biggest challenges because I my books are own voice and I write from a Vietnamese American perspective is that it's already really hard mm. <laughs> to figure out and dissect your own intergenerational traumas and information information from your culture making mm. sure that you're doing it adequately to then be you know feel like you don't have access to some of these tropes because people happen to be sick of them would yeah. definitely be very challenging and it's it's nice to be able to go okay um there's some tried and true tropes that mean a lot to a lot of people and um, now I can just do my own research and my own learning. Like there's been a lot of space between my last two manuscripts because I had to do a lot of healing and mm -hmm. there's a lot of, you know, dissection that has to be done with your own identity when you're, when you're writing from own voice. And it's just comforting to know I can choose one of these tropes and write to them. Mm, exactly. Like, yes, they are tired tropes. If it's, you know, a white male author writing them, but they're not tired from other groups that have never had the opportunity to explore these tropes. I think, yeah, it's, it's like I said earlier, there's, it's really interesting. I think actually gives a whole new spin to yes, what could be seen as an overused trope, um, but actually gives it a new lease of life in a way. Mm -hmm. So then speaking of death and dying, <laughs> I thought it'd be kind of fun to put together a quick exercise. Um, it's a real, a, a real I guess put yourself in the, the situation in the real world there's a zombie outbreak mm -hmm. and you've received a prophecy that you're the chosen one and only you can restore the world back the way that it was so what would you do in that situation oh boy I mean I am squeamish as heck so I would be very like why <laughs> why me <laughs> <laughs> you'd question it first you'd be like no <laughs> Like this is not like I I pass out of the sight of blood. Like, are you sure? Like, and then you know I've been going for a lot of questioning. I eventually probably go over that. Like, maybe if I someone um something happens to like my home village or my dog gets killed, then I'm like, okay, I've got to do something about this zombie outbreak because uh, 
that's that's not happening like that's that's just I can't deal with that um so I'd then probably seek out some kind of mentor because I know nothing about fighting zombies so you'll need someone to help me through that and also some kind of way of killing zombies that is non-gory um mm-hmm. it's the only ever time only time I've ever seen a zombie being killed it's very very gory and I'm like yeah can we just like quietly just yeah. just smother them with a pillow <laughs> <laughs> or something that's not so physical because yeah. I feel like I would I, I, my husband's like sleeping and he's like a dead weight I don't know if I could drag him across the floor <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh my god it just feels like it would be really labor intensive um <laughs> like, how would you find a mentor would you go to the internet go on twitter yeah. Oh yeah, you got to like. Does anyone know how to kill zombies like in a non-bloody way? Start a Facebook group. <laughs> zombie outbreak. Like, um, yeah. So I guess yeah, you know, in this in this day and age, you're gonna find someone that knows knows how to do these things. And I, I don't know. I suppose it's then chosen ones seem to like get up a little group around them. They're like cheerleaders. So I'm gonna need some people doing that. Like you know pumping me on into my role as a chosen one you need a uh, sidekick oh yeah i need a sidekick i would choose an animal probably because you know I, I like an animal sidekick um so yeah probably a, a do- actually my my family dogs are really like they a couple of them are gun dogs they would be very useful you know they're good at like killing small critters so yeah <laughs> that would be helpful um yeah and then where are we going so we're on the quest we've got a, i feel like a zombie outbreak do you think there's gonna be like i'm thinking game of thrones here is there like a main king zombie that i've got to kill like Ooh, that makes you know, sense yeah and then the rest of them will die so that that feels like it's a, an easier mountain to climb just yeah. gotta kill one main one <laughs> so you gotta find out about it and you've got to go questing across this you know the country to go find yeah. it Go yeah, back to where, like what what do they call it? Like the fallout zone or whatever patient zero yeah, is or whatever. Exactly. So I've gone on a little trek. Um at this point, I don't know why I'm imagining like I can't use a car. I'm just walking across the country. Um that's scary. <laughs> I would have great anxiety watching you. <laughs> you should not have much hope in my succeeding. <laughs> I don't know about your chances now. <laughs> I'm like, I haven't got any weapons i've just got a dog a dog <laughs> maybe the dog's bark like makes their head explode oh, and then you don't have to touch them yeah you know i like that and i don't, I don't need to look like as the head explodes that's that's good yeah i like that yeah you just make sure the dog barks everywhere you go and it's like you have this radar safe zone around you because <laughs> their heads are exploding <laughs> luckily the dog i'm thinking of uh aria is very loud so she she would work it's good um yeah so then king zombie is dead and uh i fluked my way through a zombie outbreak basically and somehow saved the world will people <sighs> know what you did i hope not <laughs> i feel like, like a little mess to like, i want to be left alone <laughs> like i had to deal enough with your guys's issues <laughs> dead zombies with their heads exploded like oh sorry like, i don't want to see another person for a while <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna go and live live with my dog somewhere quiet and not not want to be in civilization um yeah also i would not want to deal with the cleanup as the chosen one like yeah. i'm like i've just saved the world like come on you you can deal with the zombie bodies 
you should sacrifice yourself before the cleanup and then at least that's one lovely yeah. thing you don't have to worry about on your list <laughs> yeah I think yeah I just uh, zombie outbreak is just I have thought about this because I used to watch The Walking Dead and I was like I would be useless I would literally be like to my husband I'd be like can you kill me because I I don't want to live through this <laughs> I was also concerned because you hear about these like, you know, hypothetical situations where you, you're all on an island and everyone goes, whoever has a skill, you're worthwhile. The rest of you are useless. And I'm like, oh, my God, I don't even know. This is... <laughs> I, can, I can write. Um, I can make lists. I can... I can make clothes. I can knit. I will keep you warm in the winter. There you go. That's, That's all There you go. I can't yeah. even do that. Oh, <laughs> maybe throw a patch on something if that i really had to but you have to learn how to make beer real quick because everyone <laughs> will value that and you'll you'll have yeah. job security oh yeah absolutely all right well lucy thank you so much for joining me on this conversation i had so much fun do you have any last remarks or promotions that you'd like to share uh well i i would love it if you checked out my uh debut book um so it's a ya dark fantasy called awakening the commune's curse book one it's got found family in there it's got the chosen one with a twist that i mentioned earlier um lgbtq plus rep mental health rep um it's got an authoritarian government and a struggling rebellion trying to bring it down so yeah that is available like many in most places that sell books basically um check out my author website which is lucy a mclaren author.wordpress.com for more details speculative sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on tiktok instagram and twitter interested in being in a future episode our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.